Well, good morning, ladies. Um, last week, <clears throat> Joyce did a great job in introducing us to Saul, <clears throat> God's chosen king for his people Israel. Here, the story continues in chapter 11, <clears throat> which opens up with the account of Nahash, king of the Ammonites, seizing the Israelite city of Jabesh Gilead. The Ammonites were Israel's adversary and originated from the line of Lot, Abraham's nephew. They were descendants of Lot's son, Ben-Ami, and were nomads who settled in the area that we now know as modern-day Jordan. The Ammonites were a pagan people who worshipped the gods of Milcon and Molech and practiced child sacrifice. Molech was a fire god with the face of a calf and arms outstretched to receive the lifeless bodies of those sacrificed to him. These people were cruel and menacing and took pleasure in terrorizing their enemies. Their warlord Nahash was no different. In response to their city being taken over, verse 1 tells us that the men of Israel desperately requested that a treaty be made with them, with the promise of final surrender to the Ammonites. Nahash replied, I will make a treaty with you on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of everyone, so to bring disgrace on all Israel. Nahash, whose name means snake, appeared to be enjoying this little game of intimidation. He had already put this barbaric torture into practice with the Gadites and Reubenites and other Israelites from across the Jordan. This act of cruelty had two advantages. One, the Israelites would still have the ability to physically work the land and so generate taxes. And secondly, and most importantly, it would incapacitate them for victory in battle. Soldiers would typically take their shields in their left hand to protect their left eye, while their weapon was in their right hand. They really depended on the vision in their right eye for fighting their enemies. Without it, Israel would be at a great disadvantage militarily. In verse 3, we see how cunningly the elders of Jabesh play into Nahash's hands. They negotiate for two extra requests, an additional seven days to find a deliverer and the chance to send messengers throughout Israel. If no one came to rescue them, then they would surrender peacefully, accepting defeat and the brutal disfigurement. This proposal was accepted by Nahash. In his arrogance and pride, he figured that there was no way that there would be a deliverer or even a formidable army in Israel to squelch the Ammonite victory. Meanwhile, the messengers reached the town of Gibeah, where Saul lived, and the report gave way to much anguish and weeping from the people. Up to this point, even though Saul had been anointed by Samuel to be king and acclaimed by the people in chapter 10, he certainly didn't seem to be acting the part of Israel's new sovereign. The text implies that Saul was a herdsman, an Israelite farmer, and previously speaks of him as out looking for his donkeys, hiding in the baggage, and now following his oxen in from the fields. A pretty typical life in those days. Even though Saul did have his gallant men with him, whose hearts had been stirred by the Lord, at this juncture, Saul had not taken on the responsibilities of being Israel's king. But that was all about to change. 
As soon as Saul heard the alarming news of the ensuing Ammonite threat, the Holy Spirit rushed in upon him with extraordinary power. This divine enabling from the Lord would make all the difference in the world and would be the turning point and validation for Saul's kingship. Saul's reaction to this news was one of burning anger that led to determined action. His next response seems so odd to us, but it did bring about the desired result. Taking his valued oxen, Saul killed them, butchered them, and gave the pieces to the messengers with the order that any man in Israel who did not come to follow Saul and Samuel would lose their livelihood, sparing their lives. Notice that both leaders are mentioned here. They would work together for the unification of Israel and their victory in battle against the Ammonites. Samuel had been the faithful spiritual guide of Israel for over a generation and would continue to support the transition of this newly appointed king. The Lord put the fear of God in the men of Israel, so they came together as one united front. The troops numbered 330,000, and Saul chose Basic as their meeting place. This town was located on the west bank of the Jordan, 10 miles west of Jabesh Gilead, far enough away from the Ammonites, but still within striking distance. So that the men of Jabesh Gilead did not despair, messengers were sent to inform them that their rescue was near and indicated that the primary attack would occur before dawn the following day. The men's fears and distress were turned into joy at the prospect of this great news. They cleverly and intentionally told the Ammonites that they would peacefully surrender the next day, disarming them and putting them at ease to think that the Ammonite victory was already attained. This way, the enemy would drop their guard and most probably celebrate with abandon during the night. Meanwhile, Saul strategically divided the troops into three squads, creating a multi-sided offense and attacked the Ammonites during the hours between 2 and 6 a.m. The enemy's slaughter was a success and continued until no group of survivors were left. This victory established Saul's authority and leadership with the Israelites. They now had a king who would lead them, go out before them, and fight their battles. We, too, have a king who goes out before us and fights the many spiritual battles that we face each day. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against intense spiritual darkness that only the Lord has overcome. Zechariah 4.1 says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. We have an unfailing and eternal God who secured our victory at the cross of Calvary. He is forever with us and for us as our warrior king. Under Saul's sovereign rule, a new government would be established and any political threat taken care of. Remember the men at the end of chapter 10 who questioned Saul's position and asked, Shall Saul reign over us? Here the people asked Samuel to turn these rebels over to them so that they might be put to death. Instead, we see Saul respond with grace that only God could enable as he spared the evildoers' lives and turned Israel's attention to focus instead on the amazing salvation that the Lord had wrought. So in verse 15, we read that all the people went to Gilgal 
to renew the kingship. Samuel, their spiritual shepherd, saw the need to gather together to not only recognize Saul as king in the presence of the Lord, but also to renew and celebrate their allegiance to the rule of Yahweh and remember afresh his faithfulness and covenant love to them. There is significance in Samuel choosing Gilgal as the place of national celebration. Gilgal was a border settlement adjoining both the southern and northern tribes of Israel. It also stood as a symbol of new beginnings, where God's power worked on Israel's behalf against the hopeless odds in Joshua 3 and 4. There, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant and the people of Israel miraculously crossed over the Jordan River on dry ground. And this is where Joshua built a memorial of 12 stones in remembrance of Yahweh's deliverance. Verse 15 speaks of a great celebration where they sacrifice fellowship or peace offerings. Leviticus 7, 11 to 21 gives us a description of this particular offering. Many of the Old Testament sacrifices were ones of appeasement, but a peace offering described a voluntary sacrifice given to God for three specific occasions. It was a way to say thank you and praise God for his goodness. It was also given alongside a fulfilled vow, for example, Hannah with Samuel. And lastly, to give thanksgiving for God's deliverance in the hour of desperate need. Most other Old Testament offerings were not meant to be eaten by its worshipers, but the peace offerings were. They consisted of meat, cakes, and wafers, and only a portion was burned. The rest was given back to be enjoyed as a meal. This offering represented the covenant of peace between God and his people Israel, who had much to rejoice over. The coming together of God's people as one, their powerful deliverance by God from the Ammonites, a new king and government, and a fresh renewal under God's kingdom authority. And so ends the narrative of 1 Samuel 11. Now let's see how the character of God shines through this text. First, he is the God of hope. Notice how the familiar thread of salvation seems to run throughout the story. The word save or rescue is mentioned four times. Previously in chapter 1027, then in 11, 3, 9, and 13. The first two references speak of the hopelessness of how Israel saw their predicament. They admitted desperately needing salvation. Their situation was truly distressing. Think about the fear and frantic despair that had set in, causing the people to panic, looking for a way out. They were in danger of physical torment, slavery to the Ammonites, and perhaps even the end of their nationality as Israelites. Have you ever been there, dear sisters, where fear grips you at alarming news of a certain family member, friend, or situation? I know that I have at different times in my life. The stress goes to my gut, and my mind is swirling with lots of what-ifs. A dear friend once told me, Bevy, God doesn't give us grace for our imaginations, only for what is real. When I am fretting and fearful, it is all on me. Second Timothy 1.7 is a powerful check. 
For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. He is constantly whispering, don't be afraid, not because we are strong, but because he is strong. The realization that Satan is the true source of my fear gives me a spiritual jolt, and I see that I will either yield to my enemy's control or intentionally turn my back and cry out to Jesus to help me. Truly, he is my only hope for comfort, peace, and sanity in those hard places. He lovingly reminds us in John 15 that without me, you can do nothing. The men of Jabesh Gilead seem to have forgotten the marvelous deeds of their God in the past on their behalf. The exodus from Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, their every need provided for in the promised land, his protection from their enemies. Psalm 103, too, says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Yet the people's first inclination is not to cry out to their God, or to remember his past faithfulness to them, but to look horizontally for another means of salvation. We can ask ourselves, how often do we forget the many mercies that are new every morning? The numerous times that the Lord has blessed us and the places of pain and struggle that he has brought us through. It is so easy to forget the grace and goodness of the Lord, give in to doubt and fear, and just be absorbed with the problems at hand. The things seen seem more powerful and all-consuming than the unseen. Our hearts can be just like these men who were looking for anyone or anything to save them from their desperate plight. So may the cry of our souls be, Lord, help us as your beloved daughters to cast ourselves on you and to remember the truth of who you are and what you have been to us in the past. Enable us to turn readily and foremost to you to undertake and meet us just where we are. In chapter 11, we also see that the Lord alone is the God who saves He is the one who delivers, redeems, restores, and renews. As a young mom, looking back, I can see how I missed the mark concerning my children's salvation. To me, it was quite cut and dry. It was a formula that I thought would surely guarantee their eternal life. And it went like this. A Christian home, family devotions, a Christian church, and a Christian school equals Christian kids. Now, these are all good things, grant you, but oh my, how ignorant and prideful I was to think that these human efforts were the solution, that the God who created the world and the galaxies would stoop to operate within the framework of a formula. I am so thankful that the Lord in grace opened up my spiritual eyes to see that salvation is 100% God, period, I had to repent and ask for forgiveness for the years I had depended on a human ideology. Yes, we are to guide and nurture our children in the Lord and provide an atmosphere that is Christ-centered, that our hopes cannot be in anything that we do or say. Only the Holy Spirit can bring, <clears throat> breathe spiritual life into our children and draw them to him. 
and we can be in awe by how creatively he does this. The power and glory are to be God's alone for his sacrifice and finished work on the cross. So dear young moms and older moms and grandmoms, love your children and grandchildren well and point them to Jesus, but also cry out often with intent on their behalf to your father that they may come to know him who is the God who saves. The Lord's mercy and grace are also evident in this story, not only in giving Israel victory over the Ammonites, but in the transformation of the city of Gibeah itself. Earlier in the book of Judges, chapters 19 to 21, Gibeah can be compared to Sodom, a place of destruction and depravity. This was where the tribe of Benjamin dwelt in sin and rebellion at that time. They were neither sorry nor showed repentance for their wickedness. But God chose Gibeah to become the source of his salvation and deliverance. Romans 5, 6 says, for when we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. This is God's heart. He delights in saving those who don't deserve it. This is what he has done for us. Lastly, we see how God delights in choosing ordinary people to participate in his will and purposes, and how we can be vessels to bring joy to him and others. Saul's attributes were that he was handsome and taller than other folks, but other than that, he was quite an unremarkable man. He was a farmer, like many at that time, and he did ordinary things. It was the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit that made Saul the man God intended him to be, not his own character traits. We, too, are the clay pots that the Lord can beautifully empower to love and bless people around us. The spirit within can enable us to radiate Jesus and be a source of encouragement. A hug, a shared moment of laughter, a prepared meal, walking a hard journey with another sister, helping with childcare, being a way out for someone in need. The list goes on. The men at Jabesh Gilead were given the good news of coming rescue, which turned their sorrow and distress into joy. Words of life brought hope to them in the midst of darkness. May we too, in our ordinary days and ordinary ways, be a sweet aroma to God's glory. Now on to 1 Samuel 12, where we read Samuel's solemn, but also hopeful parting message to his beloved Israel. Pictured here, we see both the wrath and mercy of God. This text seems to be a continuation from the end of the previous chapter, where Samuel is intent on renewing the kingdom for Israel's future. Here, he transitions from being their judge to that of being a prophet. The people now have their own king, and Samuel will step down from his prominent place as the leader in the ministry that he has served in for so many years. But first, in verse 3, Samuel invites the people to testify against him concerning his life. Has he stolen, cheated, accepted bribes, or oppressed others? If his integrity is in question in any way, he wants to rectify it. It's as if Samuel is holding court and has put himself on trial. The people of Israel now become the judge and jury. Their response is immediate and unanimous. 
Samuel's behavior is and has been faultless and exemplary. This testimony they have declared in the sight of the Lord and his anointed king. In verse 6, the tables are turned and Samuel assumes the role of prosecutor as the nation of Israel symbolically goes on trial. He has been given the green light, so to speak, to be able to confront the people's sin and proceeds with a summary of Israel's history described in verse 7 as the righteous acts performed by the Lord. A sense of identity with and an awareness of their past were of great importance to the Israelites. So Samuel begins with Moses and Aaron and the exodus from Egypt. He reminds them of what their faithful God has done for them. The prophet is intent on exalting the name of the Lord, even as he opens the people's eyes to their evil hearts. In verses 8 to 11, Samuel brings to their attention the cyclical pattern in which Israel has behaved. First, they're overrun by enemy forces. Secondly, in their desperation, they cry out to the Lord in repentance for forsaking him. Thirdly, God responds by sending a succession of deliverers, many of them the judges mentioned in verse 11. And finally, there's freedom and stability for a while for the nation of Israel. Then, after some time passes, the people again forget and again forsake their God, and the cycle starts all over again. Notice verse 12. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, Samuel, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. This was a detour in Israel's cry for help. In the past, they had turned to God, but here in this narrative, the nation looked for a human someone to save them. They specified their own method of deliverance by the hand of their new king. In verses 14 and 15, Samuel gives a stark warning both to the nation and to Saul. Israel needed to see that their real enemy was not external, but inside their sinful hearts in forsaking the Lord. The choices were clear. Either they bowed down under Yahweh's authority to obey and serve him, or they would suffer rightly under his hand as did the generations past. What happens next captures the people's attention and puts the fear of God in them. Again, Samuel asks the nation to stand still and see. This time, an unusual act of God was about to happen. Samuel calls on the Lord to send thunder and rain in the midst of the harvest, the dry season. This highly uncommon occurrence would be assigned to the people convicting them of their demand for an earthly king and also confirming the words of God through Samuel. This was a reality check to the people. God's power in nature could either guarantee a good harvest or destroy it just like that. Here again, the Israelites are afraid, this time not of Nahash and the Ammonites, but of judgment from the living God for the evil they have done. Now they are feeling more distant than ever and less than confident in their relationship with Yahweh. They stand there amazed and filled with wonder for both the Lord and Samuel. But instead of crying out to God themselves, they implore their spiritual leader to be their mediator in prayer to save their very lives. 
Samuel does not shy away from the truth of their sin and idolatry. No sweeping it under the carpet. He calls sin, sin, but also reassures his people with the words, do not be afraid. Here Samuel is modeling what he knows of his God. Whenever the Lord rebukes or convicts his own of their sin, it is always with a restoration in view, never just hopeless judgment. Samuel is appealing to his people to please return to the Lord and serve him with all their hearts, accepting this fresh grace from God. There is such beauty found in verse 22. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. Back in Genesis 15, God had made a sacred covenant with Abraham and his descendants that would eventually lead to the Jewish nation of Israel. They were the apple of his eye. The promises that God made were established forever and could never be broken. God's name represented who he is, full of glory and majesty, truth and holiness. The future of God's people rested on the dependability of God himself and not the unfaithfulness of the Israelites. He knew ahead of time itself that his people would sin again and again, and yet it was God's purpose and delight to make them a people for himself. This is sheer amazing grace. Our finite minds cannot grasp the full understanding of this kind of love. As for Samuel, he would finish well, continuing a ministry of prayer on Israel's behalf and teaching the nation to do what's right and good, to have a holy reverence for and to serve the true king. His parting words to Israel are to consider. In other words, contemplate and remember all the wondrous works that their God had done for them. In closing, Samuel issues a severe warning of judgment if their evil rebellion continues. In thinking about the character of God seen in this chapter, my heart was drawn to the similarities of God's covenant love to Israel and his love for us, his bride. God is a promise keeper. Sisters, we are so precious to him, just as chosen as the Jewish nation was. In Ephesians 1, 4, Paul writes, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons, daughters, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Isn't that mind-boggling to think that even before creation, the Father had you and me in mind? And has faithfully brought each one of us to faith in his son. John Ted reminds us that none will be lost that the father intends to be his own. Jesus is safely keeping us. His promises are true and eternal and cannot be broken because he cannot lie for his namesake. What treasures are to be found in him, dear sisters? I am also challenged by the truth that God is God, and he's not to be mocked or trifled with. Our sin is a serious issue to the Lord. Why is it then that I can be so complacent about my rebellious heart? 
I think that one reason is that I just don't understand the holiness and majesty of God. I'm so used to living in a broken and sinful world that I cannot grasp the perfection and immensity of the purity, goodness, and righteousness found in God alone. How often I offend, deeply wound, malign, and turn away from this faithful one. My sin is a serious affront to who he is. Mercifully, God loves me too much to allow my wandering heart to go too far. As with Israel, because of his covenant love, he will go to all lengths to restore us as well. He is the sovereign and compassionate Lord, clothed with power and authority, worthy of our praise and obedience. In closing, Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written to teach us that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And in Isaiah 55, 11, we read, so is my word that goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Here then, dear sisters, is the challenge for each one of us. As we spend time in 1 Samuel this year, what are we learning? And how do we see the Lord accomplishing his purposes in our lives? It is his joy and delight to transform us more into the likeness of his beloved son. So I'll end with this prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so dependent on you for everything. Thank you for your incredible love for each one of us and your faithful commitment to us. Would you enable us by your spirit to want to be more like Jesus and to welcome the wonderful truths that you want to teach us? May we be given eyes to see the beauty of the real king and the true treasure that he is. Amen.